Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Martine. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that today's show deals with suicidal thoughts and other mental health struggles. So please take care when and with whom you listen. All right, here's the show. The road to paradise is this like long stretch called the Skyway. And as you're driving along it, you start to see this kind of devastated landscape. You know, that the, the ground is bare and the trees are these blackened skeletons. This is Sarah Kaplan. She's a climate reporter for The Post. And back in September, she went to Paradise, California. More than four years ago, a huge wildfire called the Campfire destroyed the town. You know, you'll, you'll drive past where there once was a house, and now it's just a stretch of grass with a mailbox. Even the trees that are still standing, they all have these kind of blackened, charred trunks. Sarah came to Paradise not just to see the devastation of this town, but to see this one special patch of land, Paradise Lake. I mean, literally, we sort of just turn a corner and pull into a forest, and it you know, sort of miraculously had not been touched by the fire. And so there are these tall ponderosa pines and the air, you can feel how much cooler the air is under the trees and uh, it smells so good. It has that, you know, piney scent. I've written about a lot of disasters as a climate reporter, including the campfire. And I wanted to come back to paradise to understand how people are living with the aftermath of that disaster and how they're, you know, they're still carrying it years later. And in particular, I was coming here to Paradise Lake because I heard about this program where people were actually returning to the same forest that had been on fire to try to find healing. Right now, we are watching California go through another wave of climate disaster. Extreme rain, catastrophic flash flooding, sinkholes, and mudslides have wreaked havoc in the state, killing at least 19 people. Recovering from a catastrophe of this scale takes a long time and can be a very painful and complicated process. As we try to understand what that might look like here and elsewhere, we wanted to know how survivors of this and other disasters might find healing on the very same land that holds the scars of climate change. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 17th. Today, we hear about a new kind of therapy that could help survivors of climate disasters work through their trauma and grief. 
Sarah spoke to my colleague, assistant producer Sabi Robinson. She's going to take it from here. So, Sarah, during your trip to California, you spent time with Laura Nelson, who survived the campfire. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Laura Nelson is a therapist. She lives in Chico, California, which is quite close to paradise. She has her own practice there. She works a lot with kids. She loves nature. She loves animals. She has all kinds of pets. My dog's name is Cedar, like the tree, C-E-D-A-R. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And my, yeah, my cat's name is Prince. And, you know, she's like owns a gazillion candles. She's very much like that kind of person. She actually used to live in paradise. It was pretty much completely destroyed by the campfire, which is the deadliest fire in California history. And can you take us back to how the fire started? The campfire started early in the morning on November 8th, 2018. There was a spark from a piece of faulty electrical equipment The damage is so extensive. You can see the face of this building has been ripped off. And as you're walking along, it looks like a bomb exploded across this community, leaving nothing but rubble and heartbreak. California had just had an exceptionally dry year, a very hot and dry year, which is becoming more and more common with climate change. And when the spark kind of flew into the forest, it just ignited this massive, massive firestorm that moved very quickly through the towns of Concow, Megalia, and Paradise. Campfire scorching more than 100,000 acres, destroying more than 6,700 homes and buildings. This weekend, Paradise looks like a war zone. The campfire pretty much destroyed Paradise. 85 people were killed. Tens of thousands of people were displaced, and lives were completely upended. People probably remember the videos of residents having to drive their cars through these tunnels of flames. People trying to calm themselves, calm their kids as they escaped sitting in traffic on the Skyway because it was the only road in and out of town and just hoping that they would survive. Heavenly Father, please help us. Please help us to be safe. Hey, guess what? We're not going to catch on fire, okay? We're going to stay away from it. And we'll be just fine. Okay? We're doing all right. Yeah, I remember that. Like, there was just, like, a skinny line of cars through, like, just, I don't know, like, the world-ending kind of pictures, you know? Yeah, I mean, it it looked like hell. And it was hell. I mean, it was so hot that the asphalt melted and, like, cars got stuck Climate disasters are horrific, and I've covered a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But hearing people's stories about escaping the campfire uh, is the stuff of nightmares. And Laura Nelson was right in the middle of it. She lived in paradise. She'd been there for years. And that morning of the campfire, she had to load her pets and her most prized possessions into her car and try to get out of town. And she drove through that just horrific firestorm. I saw the house I lived in for nine years in full flames, about 304-foot flames when I was driving down. 
And I saw the flames coming out of what would have been my son's bedroom window. And I just remember looking back over my right hand shoulder and just seeing this big, huge black cloud, like a, like a demon, like a monster. I was looking through my journals from November the 8th. Wow. And on the day of the fire, I wrote with a heart and a heartbreak, as heartbreaking as it gets, Paradise Fire, three hours of sleep. And the very next morning, which is November the 9th, I wrote shock, PTSD, anxiety, fear, helplessness, and guilt. Laura was eventually able to drive out and she wound up going up to Oregon and staying with some family. And she was there for nine months and just trying to get her bearings and figure out what she was going to do. It was really hard. You know, she spoke to me about feeling a sense of guilt that she survived and others didn't, that she Mm. left California instead of staying near her home. But also she felt, you know, she was just haunted by what she experienced, right? She had all of these symptoms of anxiety and depression and trauma, right? She carried it in her body. Her heart would race and her muscles felt tense and she had nightmares. It was incredibly difficult. And she talked about, you know, feeling again, that sort of loss of home, right? She was far away from her community. She was far away from her friends. She didn't have the support system that she would have had had she stayed in California, but many people couldn't stay in California because there was nowhere for them to go. In any grief and loss process, there's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And acceptance is the final phase. And I'll tell Mm -hmm. you when acceptance finally started to soak in, which was it is destroyed, annihilated. You have to stay out. You are removed. Like literally you cannot come back. Mm -hmm. And I finally started to understand, like, I can't go back. There's there. I can't live there. There's nowhere to work. There's no water. Like you can't live in a state of emergency. There was not enough housing for everybody. I mean, people were like staying in tents in the Walmart parking lot. So You know, that's, again, part of the trauma of an event like this is you flee your home and you lose it forever, and then you have nowhere to go. And that's a huge problem with disasters, not just what happened in Paradise, but with climate disasters generally, is that the displacement afterward and then the sort of all these like really difficult processes you have to go through dealing with trying to find housing and trying to access, you know, federal money, relief money, and and all of these things. You know, experts that I talked to said that that can really compound the trauma because you just feel unsettled and, and destabilized mm-hmm. for a really long time. I mean, it's kind of incredible to me that Laura was willing to be so open about just all of the things that she was feeling and and the the hurt that she was carrying in that time. And she told me that there were times where she thought about suicide. To feel suicidal as a way out, to end the pain and the humiliation and the embarrassment, even just feeling that way makes you feel 
those things and the guilt goes in with that. And I'm a mental health professional in the field and there was pressure there as well to be resilient. She would wake up every morning and the sort of reality of what had happened and all of the the terror and sadness that she was still carrying in her body. She felt like she couldn't breathe sometimes and she just felt like the only escape would be to end her life. You know, she just didn't know how else to cope with just the reality of what had happened and and the reality that she was gonna have to live with it every single day. Ugh. I mean, I just, I hope, was, was she able to get help with this? Like, was, you know, was there any support for her available? I mean, I'll say first that it's very difficult for disaster survivors to get help, um, mental health help afterward. Mm. It's not really part of our post-disaster infrastructure. You know, there's like funds out there for food and for shelter, but the funding for mental health is pretty limited. And especially because many of the communities that are most vulnerable to disaster, like Paradise, are already dealing with mental health burdens. Butte County Mm. actually has one of the highest rates of kind of childhood trauma in California. The most vulnerable people who already probably have a lot that they are carrying are going to be the hardest hit. So Laura was able to talk to a mental health professional and to see somebody She had to pay for it out of pocket because she didn't have a job, so she didn't have health insurance. So it was expensive. And the other thing also is that the need after the fire was so immense in Butte County, where Paradise is and where Chico is, that even if people could afford to see therapists, there was not enough therapists and psychiatrists in the county to serve everyone who needed it. And Laura talked about, and a lot of psychiatrists and disaster experts that I spoke to kind of attested to this as well, that the challenges that she faced kind of finding housing and finding the resources that she needed and how long it took to get mental health support, but also just to get basic things like a place to live, It really compounded the trauma that she had from her, you know, the evacuation itself. It sounds like, you know, this therapy, Laura paid for it out of pocket. It was really expensive and that there just weren't a lot of resources around. So what did she do next? Like, where did she turn? She tried taking medications for her depression and anxiety. But for her, those sort of traditional approaches weren't quite what she needed. They weren't bringing her the the solace that she was still seeking. And the reality was, is there's no pill that's going to fix the grief work that needs to be done for the trauma and the loss of this fire. None. There's no magic pill for this. But then she found out about this other approach to therapy, um, one that, you know, didn't use medication, um, but instead would give her an opportunity to go back to the place that she had loved and lost and, and reconnect with uh, the nature that was there. After the break, we hear more about this new kind of therapy and how it might help people like Laura in the aftermath of a climate disaster. Sabi and Sarah will be right back. So Sarah, 
What type of therapy did Laura turn to after the traditional methods weren't working for her? Yeah, so it's called forest therapy. It's this idea that spending time in nature is healing. You know, it draws on this Japanese practice called forest bathing, but it also draws on a lot of science that shows that being in forests and being in natural spaces is actually really good for people's bodies and for their brains. The reason I came up to Paradise Lake was to be with Laura and with other campfire survivors and witness as they went through a forest therapy session. How did you feel coming up here this morning? It was okay. The smoke was kind of weird, but it was okay. I was excited. Like, it feels good to do this, you know. So sometimes, you know when you go to the gym, the hardest part is just getting there? Like that. Now we're doing the work. (laughs) Laura had done forest therapy before, but for some people it was their first time. Um, Some awarenesses. Awarenesses are simply things that we need to be mindful of as we move through this space. So one is poison oak. So a good rule of thumb is leaves of three, let it be, or leaves of three, not TP. Um, So if you have any questions about that. You could see that people were kind of nervous before the session started. I imagine they were apprehensive about being back in this place um, for some people who don't come back to paradise very often and talking about their trauma with others who had also been through the fire. But as the session got underway, you could sort of see that apprehension begin to melt away. So we are all brought together today because we have something in common. We've all been deeply impacted by the campfire. Blake Ellis is the program manager for the ecotherapy program at California State University, Chico. And she was the guide for our forest therapy walk that day. Now, this time is for you all to slow down, to relax, to open up your senses, and to maybe engage with nature in a way that you've never done before, or maybe a way that you haven't done in a long time. And so anything that may come up for you, anything that is alive for you, anything that is present for you is welcome here. I mean, I think the combination of just being in that really lovely forested landscape and also Blake's presence herself, like, started putting people at ease and you could just, like, almost feel, like, the tension being released. So sometimes it's easier to explain what something is by starting with what it is not. Forest therapy is not a hike. Forest therapy is not a naturalist walk. The way the forest therapy works is that it's this kind of, like, guided meditation almost. But really, it's a series of what she calls invitations. These invitations are simply opportunities to deepen your sensory experience. Prompts for people to engage with the landscape around them, to sort of be quiet and be still. The intention of forest therapy is to slow down and to experience the natural world with all of your senses. (laughs) Which a lot of people talked about how they hadn't had an opportunity to actually just sit quietly and like focus on on the present and being aware and alive like since the fire and you know one of the things that Blake talked about is that a forest 
where things are slow and there's both movement and there's stillness, right? These big trees that live hundreds of years is a really good place to kind of just be still for a while and focus on like the smell of the air and the soil or the very slow progress of a little insect on a log and uh, just to connect with, with the place again, especially for people who had really had their relationships with this place severed by the fire, right? Where they had to flee and the place that they loved Many of them moved to paradise because they loved being among the trees and in nature. But that nature became threatening to them. It threatened their lives. And so they have to kind of heal that relationship again. And and that's one of the goals of forest therapy. Blake asked people to sort of take in the environment around them. And then she asked what they noticed, what they were feeling. And a lot of participants spoke about what it meant to be back in this forest and and what they lost in nature when the campfire came through. Before the fire, um, my backyard was just absolutely full of trees. And I would string a hammock and lay in that hammock and just look up at the trees, the canopy, and put my feet in the air. It was just something I really enjoyed, I really loved. And I miss that about my property now. I I just, I miss the trees. One of the invitations that Blake offers is this invitation to introduce yourself to what she calls a other-than-human being. So basically anything that's not a person, right? A tree, the lake, a rock the wind. And at first, a lot of people were kind of like, uh, what? (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely not something you do every day. Yeah. We do, but not me. Yeah. And she was sort of like, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Just like do whatever speaks to you. She calls it evoking sort of a childlike sense of wonder, just like getting people to kind of open themselves up to what nature has to offer. And I think a lot of people were kind of surprised by what they found when they did that. One of the people who had kind of the most powerful experience with this was Aaron O'Neill, and he talked to me about this moment of connection that he had with a tree stump, this kind of burned stump that was blackened and kind of decomposing, but it was also covered in moss and mushrooms and there were insects crawling over it and he could see holes that a bird had made. And he just like had this feeling of relating to it. I was telling the stump that I'm really sorry for what it went through. And I I don't know, yeah, I... (laughs) At first, I'm like, I'm apologizing to a tree stump. That's weird. But also, I felt the pain of the tree stump. I felt the lost dreams that the tree stump had. And I related to it. You know, even though this this forest wasn't heavily burned by the fire, like, it too has experienced the disaster. And people found signs of the wounds from that and signs of healing. And 
I think it sort of like held up a mirror to them and it got them thinking about their own wounds and their own healing. So yeah, I, I've never related to a tree stump before or for that matter, any really inanimate object. Um, but there was a lot of beauty that came out of that interaction. For me, but maybe even for the tree stump, I, I like to imagine that maybe even the tree stump felt seen, heard, and maybe even had a new recognition that it had a place in this world and was bringing beauty to it despite the pain. You know, I, I cover climate impacts, so I've, I spend a lot of time talking to people who have lost so much to climate change, being in landscapes that are just like completely devastated. And I think just like recognizing it is really powerful and also recognizing when like those harmed natural spaces are healing or you know that they have this ability to recover that the forests as devastating as the fires are like California's forests are adapted to fire and that they do have resilience and that the life can reemerge i think it gives people a sense of hope that like they too can recover and that there's, yeah, that, I mean, like what Aaron said, that beauty can come out of pain. And so as you're going through the therapy and you guys are doing this meditation, what is Laura thinking and, and feeling? Laura actually echoed some of the, the ideas that Aaron spoke about, how sort of seeing recovery and resilience in nature kind of helped her see it in herself. Something that the forest helped me is that the forest knows trauma. Mm -hmm. It knows suffering. Mm -hmm. It knows floods and droughts and cold and hot and every single thing. And that, you know, even fire adapted landscape is resilient. There's certain things that are more, um, putting out more seeds or that kind of stuff, you know, and blossoming more um, because of fire. She said that this particular session was really powerful for her because there were so many other campfire survivors there and just this feeling of kind of being among people who knew what she was going through in a place that had also been through the same thing. This sort of rekindled mm -hmm. those connections mm -hmm. and shared meaning, shared safety, mm -hmm. and camaraderie where no longer alone, mm -hmm. not in this alone. She talked about having this moment where she sort of was thinking about, you know, are the trees noticing me? What is noticing me? Look at all these things I'm noticing, but what is genuinely noticing my presence here? She was connecting so much with the forest. And, you know, even if it's just sort of like something she wonders about or kind of feels that maybe is not like super scientific, but just that feeling of like believing that her presence means something to the forest as well. So this session was back in September 
But how has the therapy, you know, impacted Laura since then? Has, has it been able to continue to help her? Laura said that the therapy really has been helpful to her. It's really, I mean, for her is the right method for healing. And obviously, like everyone who experiences trauma from a disaster is different and is going to, you know, sort of need a potentially different mix of talk therapy and, and medication and behavior changes and other things to heal. But for Laura, this opportunity to kind of heal in nature has really been helpful to her. She says it's helped with those feelings of guilt and just sort of the waking up every day filled with dread. (laughs) And it's helped kind of ease also the physical symptoms, Mm -hmm. her heart racing and her her stomach kind of tensing up and, and those other ways in which she's carrying trauma in her body. I mean, it sounds like it really worked for Laura, but I'm, I am wondering, like, more generally, is there any, like, uh, scientific evidence or data that points to this therapy working for a lot of other people who've gone through this, you know, similar experience? This particular program has not been the subject of a peer-reviewed clinical trial, but generally there is a lot of research that shows that exposure to nature is really helpful for people's physical and mental health. I mean, there are studies that show that it can boost your immune system. There's lots of research on, you know, veterans of war or survivors of sexual violence that show that spending time in nature is helpful for them to, you know, cope with with their anxiety and depression and ease those trauma symptoms. And so there's very good reason to think that this can be a potential healing mechanism for folks who go through climate disasters. And, you know, it's it's not a replacement, certainly, for professional therapy and, and psychiatry, but it could be an important supplement, especially because we know that the burden is so great. The need is so great. And if this is able to help even some fraction of people who survive a disaster, you know, it seems like a a good tool to have. So Sarah, after spending time with Laura and going through this forest therapy session and going to paradise, what really stuck with you from that reporting? Like what was your big takeaway? It really got me thinking about the power of community and connection, especially amid climate change, right, which is doing like so much harm to to our communities. To see people come together and connect with each other and connect with a place again, a place where their relationships had really been damaged by climate disaster was just really powerful. One thing that I still think about every day is... Um, There was a moment where I asked Blake, like, you're asking people to sort of reconnect with the landscape, but the landscape is still vulnerable, right? Another fire could come through, and fires have come through. Butte County had another really devastating wildfire in 2020. And, like, don't you worry that, like, you know, people are, like, establishing this relationship with with nature and then nature is still under threat. And she said, yeah, people ask me, like, you know, does forest therapy sort of set us up for future heartbreak? 
And my response is, let our hearts be broken, because they should be. And she talked about the importance of as hard as it is to sort of face up to the really sad and scary reality of climate change, like maybe people need to open themselves up to kind of ecological grief. Like we need to let ourselves feel it, both because it's there, you know, whether or not we deal with it, but also because like maybe in there is kind of the kernel of what will motivate us to change, to do something about climate change and to take care of the world that cares for us. Sarah, thank you so much for your reporting. Oh, thanks, Abby. Sarah Kaplan covers climate change for The Post. She spoke with my colleague, Sabby Robinson. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, help is available. You can call the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988, wherever you are. Special thanks today to climate reporter Brianna Sachs. She has been covering the ongoing destruction in California. And if you want to see more of her reporting, you can find it at WashingtonPost.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick and edited by Robin Amer. It was mixed by Sam Baer. I'm Martine Powers. I'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.